NapaBroadcasting.com, the online radio home of Napa Valley College. Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. We've talked several times in the past semester about the Photo Eye series here at Napa Valley College. Next week, that series reaches its apogee with the screening of the documentary regarding Susan Sontag by Bay Area filmmaker Nancy Cates. Some of Nancy's award-winning work includes Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, and a film that she made while still at Stanford, their own Vietnam. It is my pleasure to welcome Nancy Cates to NapaBroadcasting.com. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you here. With all the subjects and all the people that you certainly could have made documentaries about, what was it that was compelling to you eight, nine years ago when you started this project about doing a, a documentary about Susan Sontag? I was saddened by Sontag's death. I didn't know Susan Sontag, but when she died at the end of... Uh, 2004, I just had this sense that this important voice had gone out of the world and I had the idea at my office and I went home and I had seven of the 16 books that she published while she was alive and I thought, well, that's a pretty good sign. I've been interested in her for a long time. So that's where this came from. But I think she was one of those figures when I was about 20 that you just had to know about if you were young and female and reasonably intelligent. Um, you wanted to know what she was thinking about and I, I don't think I realized until now, you know, I made this film in middle age, but the, the person I was when I was 20, I really needed an icon or someone to look up to, and she was one of those people for me. The other thing about her is that she filled a role, it seemed, in society for so long that that's something that we don't quite see today in the same way, and that is the idea of a public intellectual, kind of a pundit before they were what we know today as pundits. She was also sort of an anti-pundit. I mean, she was actually on TV quite a bit, but she wasn't in the same role as we think of as a pundit today. In fact, at the very end of her life, she was on Nightline. We have some footage of the film of her arguing about 9-11 on Nightline. And she doesn't, she doesn't work that well as a pundit because they're supposed to be very quick, you know, 20 seconds. Susan Sontag was actually about thinking things through. So she was great on TV if the interviewer was doing what you're doing with me, asking her about her ideas. But she was not the kind of person who was going to spend 20 seconds thinking about a political issue. She wanted to think about it maybe for five years. So she didn't. She, she's not the same as our pundits today, I would say. And yes, we don't have a lot of public intellectuals, or they are at least a breed that is not um, on the ascendant in America. Um, in France and other countries, people can still be public intellectuals, but we don't really have that category very much. There are a few intellectual news, uh, magazines and newspapers that perhaps you could argue they have public intellectuals, but it's not quite as public a role either. You talk about that appearance on Nightline after 9-11. She came in for an awful lot of criticism about that because it was was really about an article she had written post 9-11 for The New Yorker in which she took a, a more objective view of those events. She did get a lot of heat for that. The, it was The New Yorker issue that came out a week after the attacks. And so it had, had to go through various editorial. I mean, I don't know how many days they took to put it together, but it was like three or something. They asked all these writers to write something in response. And Sontag was actually in Berlin, I believe. She wasn't in New York. And some people felt that she would have written something that was just a little more gentle. She might have had the same opinions, but she might have been a little more gentle about it if she had been in Manhattan actually experiencing this incredible tragedy firsthand, but she was actually watching it in Berlin on television. So um, I think that people forget 
how upset particularly the right was about this, about what she said. She was, people said she shouldn't speak, be allowed to speak in public and that she was un-American, that she was a traitor. Um, and she, of course, believed deeply in free speech. Um, she essentially, so Arundhati Roy wrote a much longer piece that had the same argument in The Guardian UK uh, around the same time, but Arundhati Roy is not an American, so she was not castigated the way Sontag was. But essentially Sontag said, are you surprised that with our foreign policy that people hate us? She wasn't justifying terrorism. She wasn't justifying mass murder. But she said, let's be realistic about this. And she also said, let's mourn together, but let's not be stupid about this, because I think she was completely offended by President Bush's you know, exhortation that we all go shopping to restore the economy. I mean, she just thought that was the most incredible idiocy she could imagine. So I don't particularly personally think she was wrong. I think she just wasn't softening the blow enough. And that was unacceptable to lots of people. Certainly she had always had this reputation from the time she started writing as early as 15 as a kind of provocateur. And there's a great consistency within the framework of a lot that she writes over her career. Well, she was unafraid. And I think that the reason she became so famous was, well, for one thing, she was incredibly beautiful. And we don't really associate beauty with the kind of brains that she had. (laughs) But she was not a well-behaved woman. And I think that that was really the thing that we in the end, wanted to capture in the movie, that she was not going to, you know, sit on the sidelines and, you know, drink tea or whatever you might expect of a woman in the 1950s and 1960s particularly. I mean, she didn't really start writing until the very end of the 50s for publication. But she was going to play with the boys in a very heated world of intellectual debate and writing. And she was going to throw some bombs into the into the pit to to get people excited about ideas. And that was just not behavior that was, you know, no one saw that coming. It was, she was kind of, in a certain way, she epitomized the feminist movement before it really started because she just was not going to be a second-class citizen because of her gender. The other corollary to that that's so interesting is that not only was she an observer and a writer, but that she really believed in that adage that you had to go there, that she was active in terms of the places she would travel in the world with respect to the things she would write about, particularly war zones and conflicts? Yeah, I mean, even today we have war correspondents, but we don't have people of letters very often going and putting their feet on the ground in the middle of, of war zones. And she did this repeatedly. She did it in Sarajevo near the end of her life. and Well, in the 90s, it wasn't that close to the end of her life. She went to Vietnam. She went to North Vietnam while we were at war with North Vietnam, which was actually illegal. <laughs> Um, on a little tour with a couple of other Americans, which was, of course, a propaganda thing for the North Vietnamese, but it was a very radical thing to do, and it caused the FBI to start a file on her, of course, which is kind of hilarious to read because, you know, they would send the FBI agents to see her speak at some, you know, intellectual event, and then the FBI agents would have to write it up for their notes. Um, She went to Israel at the end of the 1974 war there, but yeah, she felt that bearing witness to war was an important part of what she was doing as a writer. It was very courageous. It may have been foolish, but it was very courageous. Talk about the balance in terms of the things that interested her and the things that she wrote about between the political and the cultural and the social, because she wrote just as much about the cultural landscape and about things that were outside of the political realm. Well, she said repeatedly that she was interested in everything. So 
you know, if you're interested in everything, you can write about anything. So she wrote Illness as Metaphor after she had cancer. She had stage four breast cancer that she survived probably because she took a very aggressive approach to trying to find treatment in France, ultimately, not in the United States. Um, you know, she was obsessed with the arts, and she wrote about most of them, and sometimes she wrote about them, you know, she got involved with a dancer, so she wrote about dance, which she had not done before. Um, she got, she was uh, lovers with Nicole Stefan, who was a French movie actress and producer, and, um, you know, so she started making films. I think she actually made her first film before she, she met Nicole, but Nicole helped her make some of her films. So she was a bit of a sponge in a certain way, too, um, but she... She wrote ultimately much more about arts and ideas than she did about politics, but then she would say very inflammatory things. For example, she, in either 68 or 69, right around the time that she went to North Vietnam, she said the white grace is the cancer of human history. That's a you know pretty inflammatory thing to say, <laughs> given that most of the people that were probably reading this were themselves Caucasian. One of the other things that's so interesting is that she saw herself as a New Yorker, it seemed, or certainly as an East Coast person. And yet she grew up in part in California. She grew up and went to high school in North Hollywood, California, and her papers are, are at UCLA. Well, I had this funny thing in one of our grant proposals. I said uh, her body is buried in Paris, but her mind is buried in Los Angeles, <laughs> which is deeply ironic since it's considered to be kind of an anti-intellectual place. Um, but yes, her son in the introduction to the first volume of her journals, which were published after her death, compares her, I think this is really silly, to some sort of Balzac um, hero, you know, from some 19th century French novel that Balzac always had these, these young men who came from the, the provinces and tried to make it in Paris. And the, the Sontag epitomized a certain kind of, you know, refusal to be provincial by becoming the uber New Yorker. But yes, in fact, she grew up partly in Arizona and in California. Talk about her commitment to free speech. Well, I don't think... The funny thing is, until 9-11, no one really spoke about that with her. I mean, I guess the other exception to that would be she was the president of Penn, which was the American branch of the International Human Rights Organization that's run by writers. Um, And she happened to be the president of Penn at the time that Salman Rushdie was threatened with the fatwa um, by Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran. And... She was very courageous. I mean, people forget that as well. There are a lot of things in Sontag's history that, you know, they kind of blow over and people forget about them. But, you know, there were riots in Pakistan over his book, The Satanic Verses, and 23 people died in in those riots. Several people died in England. Here in Berkeley, California, where I live, Cody's was bombed. I mean, people forget about Mm -hmm. this, but it was a very scary moment. And it was in 1989, which was before these other incidents of international terrorism happened in the United States. You know, there there were some in Europe. And she talked about Islamic fundamentalism in the late 80s, that, you know, there are very few people who are involved in these things, you know, who are actually terrorists. But she said this is an act of international terrorism, that, that someone wants to assassinate a writer for his book. So she was very courageous at that moment. And unfortunately, it was one of the things we could not include in the film because, you know, just talking about it here takes several minutes. I mean, the film is about Susan Sontag. It's not about Salman Rushdie. So after a lot of um, 
attempts in the edit room to figure out some succinct way to tell the story. We just decided you're going to have to read about it elsewhere. <laughs> and that was, it's kind of a sad thing when you make a film and there's something important that somebody does and you cannot address it. But it takes at least four minutes to talk about someone. Rushing. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, show it. <laughs> what's, what's so ironic about her life, one of the things certainly, is that as much as she was that put herself out there and there were so many things that she wrote about it, so much that she was clearly interested in, that she was so secretive in some respects about her own personal life and her sexuality. Well, she came of age, I'm not going to defend Sontag's closet, but she came of age at a time when it wasn't really safe to be out publicly and certainly in an ironic way, it wasn't even safe to be a woman in the circles that she was traveling in, and I don't mean physically safe, but men did not take women seriously in the world that she lived in. And she said, you're not going to treat me that way. But it, I think she deeply believed that if she identified herself as a lesbian or as bisexual, because she didn't really identify as a lesbian, even with her friends, she just, you know. she In fact, she had this sort of French attitude about her sexuality. She, she didn't really want to be defined one way or the other, but most of her important relationships after her marriage were with women. But she definitely felt, at least in the 60s and 70s, that she would not have been taken seriously if she had, if this had been known about her. And, you know, we can think about who, who was taken seriously in letters in, in America at that time. It was Adrienne Rich. And that was about it, you know, as out lesbians, you know, working in the literary world. So the, the great irony is that by the time the 80s and 90s came around, people were clamoring for her to come out because they saw her as this hero of theirs, and she still refused. And I, I think it actually, not only is it a disappointment from, you know, from the outside as a figure, you know, that she wasn't this heroic figure she seemed to be, at least about this issue, but I think it destroyed any chance that she might have had of being a great novelist. I, I don't know what it takes to be a great novelist. I don't write fiction. I, I think you have to have this, you know, innate talent. But she refused to write about the things that she was most passionate about. At least she wrote about ideas and other things and collecting and this and that in her fiction. But she couldn't write about her passions for women. And so she, and that she, the thing she most wanted to be was the next Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Balzac, if we use that example again. And she just she didn't have the goods. But even if she really had had the talent for fiction, she wouldn't access the things that she was most passionate about. So it is very, very ironic and very sad, actually. How did she relate to feminism in general? Well, <laughs> there's someone that we interviewed who essentially calls her a crappy feminist. <laughs> um, and she was a feminist. She kind of thought feminism, of course, you know, of course men and women are equal. And why do we have to talk about this? This is ridiculous. And she wrote several pieces, you know, that were published that were basically feminist tracts. But she wasn't interested in helping other women. And she often made fun of women for, you know, carrying handbags and wearing makeup and this sort of thing. So she... It was like she was a feminist icon, but she wasn't a great feminist. And Catherine Stimson, who is the retired dean of NYU, uh, who's a major feminist thinker, I, we interviewed her, and she only has one soundbite in the film. And, and she said, you know, don't dismiss Sontag and her feminism. She wasn't out marching with her now button, but she was leading the way as a figure for women, and she was advocating for the equality of women. So she's a little complicated as a feminist. But people, I was very proud that Ms. Magazine named the film as one of the ten top feminist films of 2014 
so <laughs> the, the whole film is a feminist project in some way as well. One of the quotes of hers that you have in the film, it's in the trailer, is, is her saying that writing is a way of paying attention to the world. How did she see filmmaking relating to that? Well, she made four films, uh, three are fiction, and one is this odd documentary called Promised Lands, which was made in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War in Israel in 1974. Um, it's a tricky question. I, I think that Sontag, she also said that she preferred the form of truth that appears in fiction um, than, the, than, than in nonfiction, than in, in fiction the truth and the its opposite are also true and that so she was very squirrely about things like truth um but i think that she thought that film was she was completely enamored of photography we haven't really talked about her book on photography um and she was completely besotted with film and she would go to four or five films a week and if you read her journals there are endless lists of the films that she's gone to, and sometimes she goes to see them five times before they leave the theaters. Or she'll go to see, you know, three current films and, you know, three Hollywood films from the 40s. And at the end of her life, she would only watch films that were made before, I think, 1945 or something. Um, but she was, you know, it was courageous of her to, to make feature films because she really didn't know how to do that. And, you know, these films, they had some modest success at the time, but they are not considered to be great works of art today. Um, but she she went there. She tried it. And having read all that you have about her attitude towards film and seeing her films and obviously reading the journals and, and certainly her work on photography, talk about the way that infused your effort in making this documentary. Well, thank you for such a great question. Uh, my commitment was to make a film that was visually exciting because I felt that she deserved that. And she was besotted and obsessed with beauty, not just the image, but beauty itself. And so I wanted the film to be beautiful. I felt that she deserved that in some way. And there's a lot of slightly experimental stuff in the film. It's a traditional documentary. It has talking heads, but it also has a lot of uses of imagery that are not tr- not standard for documentaries. And... And we worked really hard on that. There were several reasons to do it. Um, one is that thinking and writing are not things that you can, they're not action things. You can't really <laughs> film someone, <laughs> you know, thinking. Um, in fact, there was a feature film about Hannah Arendt uh, a couple of years ago, and they just had her smoking and sitting in the bathtub. You know, that was that was her, the action shot of Hannah Arendt thinking. Um but we wanted to try to find visual metaphors for what happens inside your brain when you're trying to write something, when you're trying to think about something. So we took Sontag's image and we projected it into a tank of water and onto cement walls and all kinds of stuff. And I got all these letters and we animated some of them and we had little montages and displays and you have to see the film to see all these things. And uh, we worked very, very hard to create a film that was visually exciting and that, that did give the viewer little moments to sort of reflect or um, take in, because it's a very talky film about a very talkative person. Um, but there are these visual sequences that are that hopefully hit you in a more emotional and, and visceral level. And I worked on these um, at several artist residencies and then my cinematographer Sophie Constantino and I just spent hours and hours in studios uh, creating these things. Nancy Cates, 
A film regarding Susan Sontag will be screening as part of the Photo Eye series at Napa Valley College Thursday night, the 29th at 6 p.m. in the boardroom. Nancy, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Napa Valley College Now on NapaBroadcasting.com.